Hello and welcome to Guiding Assets, the flagship investment podcast for CFA Institute. I'm Mike Wahlberg, and I'm pleased to welcome Joe Clement to the show today to talk about what's happening in the banking sector in Europe from his seat in London. For those who watch your feeds closely, you may notice we're putting this one out a week early. That's given the fast pace of things in this space right now. Joe is an investment strategist at London-based investment bank Liberum, with more than 20 years of experience in the financial markets helping manage portfolios for wealthy individuals and family offices. He earned master's degrees in both mathematics and economics and finance and is currently in his ninth year as a trustee of CFA Institute's Research Foundation. Welcome to the show, Joe. Hi, thanks for having me. Now, Joe, you spent time at both of the key players in the news over the weekend, heading up strategic research at UBS Wealth Management and later doing, a, it looks like, a similar role at Credit Suisse. And I do want to get to that deal specifically, but for the benefit of listeners who are just getting up to the curve on the current troubles in the banking industry, before we get there, I wonder if you could please walk us through the progression of this. I, I hate to call it a crisis, maybe a confidence breakdown that started at Silicon Valley Bank last week. So what, what kicked off this current round of sell-offs? Yeah, it, it, it definitely isn't a crisis in my view or in, in the sense of a systemic crisis. It's more like a, an unfortunate fall of several dominoes in a row. And, and it kicked off, as you said, with SVB Bank in California, where basically they were heavily reliant on deposits from venture capital firms and private equity sponsored small young companies. And they had lots and lots and lots of those deposits, but in order to kind of do something with that money, they invested it in treasuries. And normally if a bank does that, what they do is they also enter in a swap to hedge the risk because the treasuries pay you fixed interest rates and will decline in value if interest rates rise, uh, while your deposits are usually variable rates and will basically not decline in value if interest rates rise, but you actually have to pay them more. So what every treasurer of a bank does is provide, put a swap on top that swaps the fixed uh, versus the floating. So you kind of internally hedged. For some very weird reason, the risk management in SVB bank was, to put it bluntly, non-existent and they didn't have that swap on. So the end result was that they showed a lot of losses, several billion dollars in losses in the treasury portfolio. And when those venture capital firms and small ca- small firms came and basically said, we need that money to finance our growth, given that interest rates are so high now, we can't get any fresh loans. Well, they withdrew the deposits and SVB Bank was forced to liquidate all those treasuries at massive losses, driving them eventually to bankruptcy. But you see already from this kind of description that this was a real one-off. No reasonable bank, sensible bank would do anything like SVB did. Yeah, because that was that was going to be my next question. There was 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 this idiosyncratic to them, or was this sort of contagion that spread to the other regional banks like Signature, Silvergate? Like, was that warranted, or it sounds like it's not in your view? No, it's definitely idiosyncratic. But what it did is it it damaged the trust in banks, and so people were asking questions like, which other bank made similar mistakes or is in a similar position as SVB Bank? And that's how it basically spread over to First Republic Bank, uh, which is kind of the prime candidate that we're all looking at the moment. But as far as I can tell, they're very, very solvent and very liquid. So no problem there. And then the other candidate where it really, really hurt was that big Swiss bank that for the last two years was mired in one scandal after another, where investors have been losing trust for the last two years, namely Credit Suisse. Again, not a not a depositor issue or lack of risk management, but literally a series of, of 
issues and missteps in all kinds of units across Credit Suisse that have basically eroded trust. And then when trust gets kind of scarce and, and erodes away, then basically investors were taking money out of Credit Suisse as fast as they could. Yeah, so that that seems to be the poster child right now in terms of the the quote troubles in in Europe with respect to the banking sector there. Yeah, and uh, yeah, you're you're right. They certainly have had a number of scandals over the last few years in terms of lapses in ethics and and fraud and 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 the like. So, have, how have those problems presented themselves otherwise in Europe, or is it really contained to Credit Suisse? And and I'd like to ask you at this point as well to to, to comment on that Credit Suisse UBS deal when you get a sec. Yeah, before I go into the UBS Credit Suisse deal, which is kind of its own topic. But again, we are now in a situation where we're doubting a lot of banks. We can't see, at least I can't see any major banks in Europe that are in any way or shape or form comparable to Credit Suisse or SVB Bank. The only European bank that was comparable to SVB Bank was SVB UK. It's UK daughter, so to say. Uh, and that has been bought by HSBC for one pound, which is a wonderful, wonderful way to solve the problem because you swallow up a $100 billion balance sheet in a $5 trillion balance sheet and nobody's the wiser afterwards. So, And it's a good opportunity for them too, right? For some of these bigger banks. For HSBC, it's a wonderful opportunity to buy into a market and get access to borrowers that are going to need a lot of loans going forward, and that is a strong growth market. So for them, it's been a brilliant deal. And if I may say so, for UBS, the kind of, well, is it a forced takeover? Let's call it a forced takeover because I think it is, it, it was a takeover based on pressure by the Swiss authorities more than by UBS' own volition. So this forced takeover was done at a bargain basement price basement bargain price for UBS. So they got a, a really good Swiss bank and a really good private bank, global private bank at really, really heavy discount. Now, is that going to be without risks? Obviously not because of the legal issues that, that Credit Suisse was in beforehand. And because the UBS now has the situation that it has to downsize the investment bank to its own more conservative risk management standards. All of this is with heavy operational risks, but they're also getting a really, really good Swiss retail bank and a global private bank at you know really cheap prices. And and you're you're in on the on the investment banking side of the business as well. So what's the scuttlebutt around CSFB and what's going to happen with uh, that's Credit Suisse versus Boston for our listeners? It's you know a big U.S. arm of that that it's a powerhouse really historically has been in, uh, within that space. Yeah, it's so I was on the private banking side, both of UBS and Credit Suisse, but it looks like that CSFB deal, which by the way, CSFB Credit Suisse first boss was a powerhouse and then the, the name got swallowed up by Credit Suisse after some scandals in the aftermath of the tech bubble in the 1990s. So, And now it was supposed to be re resurrected as a spin-off of the advisory business and the leveraged loans business. So kind of the most attractive part. That doesn't seem to go through for the time being. So yesterday evening, when I listened to the webcast of the UBS leadership on that merger, they were very evasive, basically said, we don't know what we're going to do with that. But my best guess is because the the deal of the spin out of the Credit Suisse First Boston parts was heavily criticized for being very much in favor of Michael Klein and, and the guys who would run CSFB and very much in the disfavor of Credit Suisse. And my best guess is that the new UBS leadership will now go back to the drawing board and renegotiate these things. 
So we're, we're talking on Monday, March 20th, as you know, and, and Reuters reported yesterday that two additional banks have approached the ECB, hoping it would proactively extend a sort of protection to their depositors to avoid contagion to their deposit bases there. Uh, do you see this as, as likely? or And if it was, do you think it would be enough to staunch this uh, crisis of confidence? Or, or what else might be needed if not? Well, I think the, as you said, we, we, we record this on the on Monday, the 20th of March. And, and I think the key element will be the Fed meeting later this week. And, and the reason simply is that after the UBS Credit Suisse takeover, the focus of investors now is less the equity side and more the additional tier one capital, because one of the oddities of the Credit Suisse takeover was that shareholders actually got a price for their share, while additional tier one capital holders, so junior bondholders, got wiped out. And that just kind of blew everybody's mind. There are now rumors, and I'm not a bank analyst, so I haven't not sure whether that's true, but there are, I've seen screenshots of prospectuses of these junior bonds from Credit Suisse that actually had passages in there that said that in, in the case of a government intervention, the junior bondholders could be wiped out while equity and other tier one capital could still be standing. So it could have been that just people haven't read the prospectus carefully enough. Wow, because that, that blows up everything you know about capital structure, right? And how that's supposed to work, right? Exactly. 20 odd years of studying finance and working in this industry and you always assume equity is the first thing to go. I mean, this is why it's supposed to pay a risk premium. And and this is just very, very odd. So Lloyd, Lloyd Bankfine, who, as you know, used to head up Goldman Sachs, he also said this past weekend that he expects the, the banking crisis in the U.S. to expedite overall credit tightening yep. and, and slow the U.S. economy. So yep. Besides the banking sector, what sectors do you expect to be most affected by the current turmoil? And, and are you as concerned as him, but but for Europe? Yeah, I think the main outcome of this entire episode is less likely to be a fully-fledged banking crisis a la 2008, where we had a systemic effect based on the real estate market and the mortgage market underneath it. I think the main effect this time around is going to be that banks now will be very reluctant to lend. They would just basically tighten their lending standards significantly. And that means that if you are invested in businesses that need bank loans to fund their operations or their growth, you're in trouble. These businesses are in trouble. So that's why I tend to emphasize, and, and that's across sectors. So whether this is a capital goods company that needs major loans or whether it's a small growth-oriented tech company, doesn't matter. The, what, what to me matters the most is that I would want to stay away from companies with negative free cash flows. I want to invest in companies that can finance their operations and ideally also their growth from internal cash flows. That's the important stuff. But as soon as you go into kind of, you know, companies burning cash, whether it's private equity owned or listed, that's really a risky thing in the next six to 12 months. Is it true that European businesses tend to be more bank debt financed relative to the debt capital markets like they are in, in, the, in North America? Like Absolutely. So European companies overall tend to have a more conservative balance sheet than American companies, which you can see that those companies that have public debt outstanding, the average rating of a US company is somewhere in the double B plus range, while in, in Europe, it is somewhere around triple B to triple B plus, so almost an entire grade up above the US average. So there's there's much more conservatism in bank balance sheet uh, in balance sheets in general, and there is a much much more it's much much more common to have a revolving credit facility or any kind of bank loan in place rather than bonds outstanding, and that 
normally has an advantage because um, many of these European companies have extremely good relationships with their house banks and get really favorable conditions based on that. However, when your bank or your two free house banks start to tighten lending conditions, that, then it backfires. Then you suddenly are much more vulnerable to kind of not getting access to, to debt markets. So you touched on something there, Joe, that I, I love to push on a little bit, which is the differences between today and 2023 and, and 2008. Can you talk a little bit more about, about how it's not like 07, 08 right now? Yeah. So, I mean, as I said, we, we already discussed that SVB and Credit Suisse, the two poster childs this year, have very idiosyncratic reasons for why they got in trouble. But the general, I think that the most important difference is that in 2008, banks got into trouble because we did not know about the underlying assets and what they were worth. We, we literally had balance sheets full of CDOs and, and all kinds of subprime mortgages, and nobody knew what they was, what they was worth. So you got a, a liquidity crisis and an asset crisis. This time around, we do not have an asset crisis. We know exactly what the banks have in capital. They have much more capital than in 2008 because of 2008 and the, and the regulation that came in afterwards. And the capital they have tend to be treasuries and other government bonds plus equity capital. So that's easy to price because there is a price that you can look up every day during your, during your trading hours. Where the risk comes in at the moment is that we get into a liquidity crisis as we get this continued bank run and people just withdrawing their deposits and putting it somewhere else. But the question is, where do you put it? Because Unlike in the US, where a common phenomenon is you withdraw your deposits, you put it into money market funds where you earn at the moment 5% plus, and it's a really attractive proposition, money market funds aren't that popular and that common in Europe. So if you take your money out of your bank account, basically the only place you can put it into is government bonds. That's the next safest asset. And that's the interesting thing that we see in bond markets today. Because while the markets overall are relatively stable, and at least banks after an initial shock at the beginning of the, of the day are now recovering in share prices, bonds are rallying like crazy because yields are dropping off a cliff, continue to drop off a cliff. And that, I think, shows you that a lot of people are just kind of going into any kind of safe haven asset that they can find. And that, that ironically might have helped SVP a week ago, eh? Exactly. Treasury, two-year treasuries dropping by 100 basis points would have taken the, the pressure off of SVB overnight, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and I mean, I know I know that they tightened in a lot, like you say, 100 basis points in, in a week there. They did say, I think they, they widened out a, again a little bit after that. But from what we're seeing, you know, the market still seem to have moved forward expectations of cuts, yep. at least by the Fed, back into yep. 2023 and 2024. Is this similar in Europe? And what implications do you see for monetary policy at the ECB and, and elsewhere? I know U.S., ECB, and Swiss National Bank all have met meetings scheduled this week, so I'm curious your thoughts. Yeah, so so Bank of England have meetings uh, scheduled the day after the U.S. Fed. ECB was last week. And uh, it's interesting. There is a massive, massive divergence in expectations between the Fed and the European counterparts. So in, in the U.S., as we speak, the, the market kind of money market prices in up to 100 basis points, so four rate cuts in the second half of this year, starting as soon as June. While for Bank of England, ECB, Swiss National Bank is a special case because they essentially have to shadow the, the ECB simply to keep their currency, the Swiss franc, stable versus the euro. So what the ECB does, the Swiss National Bank does 
basically afterwards. And in Europe, the picture is one of, well, 25 basis point rate hike this week or in the next meeting. And then basically until the end of the year, another 25 basis point rate cut so that we end the year where we are today. So it's a much more kind of stable, benign picture, which to me makes much more sense than the expectations for the U.S. Because let's face it, whether we're talking about the U.S. or Europe, inflation is still very, very high and way above target. And the biggest risk I think that central banks can face right now is cutting too soon. Because what happens then is you create more demand and 12 months later you get another inflation push and you have to start hiking interest rates again. It's exactly as Jerome Powell has said in basically every speech since Jackson Hole last August. So I want to talk about the unintended impact of bank bailouts. So it's namely the criticism that really it alleviates these short-term problems, but doesn't really address systemic risk. So if, yes. you know, obviously if the upside belongs to the bank and the downside belongs to the state, that asymmetric payoff can encourage banks to take outside risks and behave badly. So in our 25-minute podcast, Joe, I'm hoping you can solve this intractable problem for us. <laughs> uh, I wish. <laughs> <laughs> That's not my question, but do you think we'll see another round of legislation akin to the Dodd-Frank Act after this passes? Yes, because the knee-jerk reaction of regulators is that they will regulate. And as you rightfully point out, with every bit of new regulation, unintended consequences ensure. And, and, and sometimes the unintended consequences are plain in sight. So just look at that UBS Credit Suisse deal. We now have a bank in Switzerland, the joint UBS Credit Suisse bank, which has almost 50% market share in retail banking in Switzerland, which owns more than 50% of all mortgages sold in Switzerland and has a, a balance sheet of, correct me if I'm wrong, but $5 trillion, something like that in a country that has a GDP of $1.5 trillion. So guess what happens the next time UBS gets into trouble? And, and this is not an if, this is a when. And can a small country like Switzerland deal with a massive bank like UBS? I, I seriously doubt that. Well, we're coming to the end of our, our chat today, Joe, I'm afraid to say, but just our final question for you. What was your first job in the industry? And if you could go back and take yourself for coffee on your first day, what key piece of advice would you offer yourself? So my first job in the financial industry was as an investment consultant working for UBS to consult pension funds of small and medium-sized enterprises in Switzerland. And then from there on, I quickly changed into research there. And the number one thing tip that I would give myself today is do your own thinking. I noticed that when I work with younger colleagues who are not as experienced as you and I are, that we're very tempted to listen to other people and adopt their views. And this is very dangerous because you are just going to end up in a corner that you might not want to be ending up where you actually start to kind of defend views that you might not have had otherwise. So kind of, yes, it's fine to listen to other experts but do your own thinking, come up with your own views, not just kind of repeat the views of other people that you've read somewhere else. I've been speaking today with Joe Clement, an investment strategist at Liberum. Thanks so much for coming on the show today. Thank you. I'm Mike Wahlberg, and this has been Guiding Assets. Guiding Assets.